This morning as we move forward, I'm excited about this message. Let me just precursor the message. It's a little bit different today. In the high priestly prayer, there is so much that is involved. We could spend, you've heard me say this over and over, we could spend five months just on the high priestly prayer. I don't have that luxury. So I'm going to encourage you, you go spend five months in the high priestly prayer. The way that I'm approaching this this morning is so that you grasp one thought. I'm throwing out most of the styles of preaching so that you grasp one thought. So that you hold on to whatever it is that the Spirit has for you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to pray over you right now that as we move through a very serious passage of Scripture, that you hear exactly what God has for you. Because I don't know. I don't know specifically what you need to hear. I know what the text says. But if you've been meandering through the Scriptures at all in, in your days here on earth, you know that the Scriptures, through the power of the Holy Spirit, He can use the same Scripture you see over and over and over to help you learn new things. So let me pray that this morning we learn, we hear, we respond exactly the way the Spirit wants us to. Let's pray. Lord, I commit this time to You. I ask that as there are many words that will be stated, that Your Spirit works supernaturally within the hearts and the minds of each person this morning to hear what You have for them. All of this will be truth. But Father, it will be impossible for each person to grasp every concept that we're going to lay out. So I ask that Your Spirit would work beyond what I can do. We do so trusting. We do so believing. We do so in faith. Let us be different in a few moments. Amen. I had the privilege, and I say privilege, to sit with a friend yesterday. A friend that I haven't had a lot of time with. He's a new friend, and I really don't have much history with him. But the time that I've had with him has been glorious. It's been centered around Christ. And yesterday, I got to spend time praying with my friend Eric. I don't know how many more hours Eric has on this earth. And so this sermon is dedicated for Eric. And you'll see why in a moment. The title of our sermon today is that Jesus prays for His disciples. We saw last week that as He enters into the high priestly prayer, He has spent time talking to His disciples and investing in praying, or I'm sorry, instructing them, and now He goes to prayer. We as a church are focusing more on prayer. Tonight we have a prayer meeting. Last month was tremendous. I encourage you to be here. Things happen when you pray. And Jesus gives us a pattern of prayer. So last week we started with the first five verses where we see that Jesus actually prays for whom? Himself. And we talked about the fact that so much of the time we feel a little awkward praying for ourselves. Brad, I can assure you that I will not be praying for the angels to win on Wednesday. I won't be praying for the giants to win, but I also won't be praying for anybody to win. Because I don't know that Jesus deals in those things. When it comes to our spiritual edification and our spiritual growth, 
Folks, pray for yourself. Even Jesus did. And as we look and examine the, the components and the beauty and the poetry of how Jesus speaks during this prayer, understand that we get a glimpse into how He communicates to His Father, but He's also doing so in front of His disciples. So in essence, He's doing so knowing that this would be recorded. He does so to give us an example. So now He moves out of praying for Himself and He starts praying for His disciples. What does that look like? Well, the best way for me to break it down is to show you two things. Number one, Jesus is praying for His disciples because He loved them, because He invested in them, because He cared for them. He valued them. They were His purpose. Up until this moment, you're going to hear Jesus say in the text that He's no longer in the world, and yet He is in the world. In His mind, He is done. He is moving on. He is now moving into what the Father had given Him. He's readying Himself for the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. But what about all the ministry that happened? What about all of His kingdom purpose prior to this moment? It was there as a demonstration and an involvement to invest into these guys. And it is an examination of how much He loves you and I. So as you hear Him speak, I want you to focus on a couple things this morning. Number one, Jesus is possessive. Jesus is possessive. Our title today is Jesus prayed for His disciples in the world, out of the world. And so as we move into this idea that Jesus is possessive, I want to show you a picture that many of you will remember. This is the day I got to baptize Eric. And I want you to look at that expression of joy on his face. Yesterday as I was praying with him and the family was surrounded, somebody asked if if we pray the salvation prayer. And I understand what they were asking, but I already knew that right here, Eric had done business Easter Sunday, and he made sure he was in the Lord's company. And so I turned to Eric just so everybody could hear, and I said, Eric, you know Jesus is your Savior? Now understand, Eric's on a lot of morphine. I wasn't even sure how much he understood what I was saying. But at that moment, I thought he was going to get up out of the bed and punch me in the face. And there was some angst in his voice, and he said, What? You know I did. I said, I know. I know, Eric. I'm, I want them to hear it. I want them to feel secure that you're going where you need to go, where you want to go. And we talked about this picture yesterday, that the joy that's painted on his face pales in comparison to the joy he's about to experience. But this predicates this idea of being in the world and out of the world and pause for a moment just to think, this is what Jesus is getting ready to do. Is He not? He's getting ready to leave. He's getting ready to be out. And yet He's leaving people in. And where is His concern? It's for the people. One of the few things I could understand from Eric yesterday was this. He said, this is fabulous. He said this. He said this. And you guys heard it. He said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to change the world. We say a lot of things in those final moments of what we wish we could do. And we know the Scripture says we don't, we don't come back. But here's what we're doing this morning with Eric. Through that statement, we're dedicating this sermon 
to the words that He wished He could share with you. So He'll have influence this morning. He can have the opportunity to help change the world. This morning as we look at this idea that Jesus prays for His disciple, let's start with the idea that Jesus is in the world. I'm going to move fast through this because I want you to understand the magnitude of what's going on. While Jesus was in the world, He committed three years of His life, of His ministry, to investing into a group of guys. They are now present with Him. They are aside Him. And it is the moment before He will be killed. And they're scared. They're confused. And Jesus goes into prayer before the Father and He starts to give account for what He has done. Go up and look in verse 4, if you will, of chapter 17. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now He has not yet died. He has not yet hung on the cross. He's not yet paid the penalty. He's not yet given and demonstrated victory over death. So what work is He ascribing to? The work of pouring His life into these men. It is done. It is finished. He accomplished it. What does that look like? For you and I this morning, if we were facing certain death tomorrow, would there be regrets? Would we be going through a grocery list of those things that we wish we would have accomplished? Jesus is about to be done. And He goes through the grocery list and He says, I accomplished it. What does that look like? We're going to take a peek through Jesus' own words of what it looks like to finish well and to accomplish God's work while in the world. Number one, He manifested the words that God gave Him in verse 6. He gave Himself to the disciples. He manifested the actual Word, the Logos. Remember, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. And so He manifested, He made real the Word of God to the disciples. Verse 6 as well, we see that He pulled them out of the world. We know by Scripture that not everyone will experience grace because of their choice. We'll see that in a moment with Judas. But what He does is He comes to their world, their life, their circumstances, and whether it's a tax collector sitting at a gate, or whether it's fishermen, or whether it's an individual sitting under a tree, He calls them and He pulls them out of the world. And what he says to them is that they're not necessarily not part of the world or in the world, but they're no longer of the world. They have new purpose. Just like he had a purpose. Their new purpose is his purpose. He pulls them out of the world. Verse 6, he has been a faithful shepherd to those who belong to the Father. We see that as well in verse 6. Let me go ahead and read the passage real quickly. You see it up there. And as, you, as I move through this quickly, follow with me and read those Scriptures that are on the screen or in your text. But verse 6 says this, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me. And they have kept Your Word. He's been faithful as a shepherd over those who belong. How is that indicated? Because they have kept His Word. Under His tutelage, under His experience, if you are a coach, if you are a mentor, if you are a tutor, if the person passes muster, if they get it, if when put to the test, they survive, you have succeeded as a coach. Jesus was a good shepherd. He informed them. He taught them. Verse 7 and 8, it says this, 
Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have what? Believed that you sent me. He informed them. He taught them. This is almost as if, if you know the relationship between the disciples and Jesus Christ, it's as if He gave them, you know, faith for dummies. You see those manuals that, that are in all yellow, right? Nobody here is going to admit that they have one for something, right? I'm waiting for the one that, that's like life for dummies. Actually, I, I have it. It's not in yellow. It's right here. It's the Bible. Jesus had to work with these guys that didn't get it over and over and over. He never gave up. He kept teaching. He kept investing. He kept informing them. He was faithful to do that. What did He give them when He taught them? He gave them the truth. Verse 8. He didn't give them some worldly philosophy. He didn't give them that which they wanted to hear. He gave them the truth, that which was beneficial for them. Also in verse 8, He led them to belief. Now that belief, they have to have it presented to them in the truth. And He acknowledged when they believed. Whether it was Peter, whether it was Philip. Remember, He said, Blessed are you who, who now believe, and greater things you will see than this. They believed. And then in verse 9, let me read it. Verse 9, go to it if you will. He says, I am praying for them. This is in the present tense. It's as if you are praying you're in the midst of your prayer, you start to intercede for someone. You don't speak of it in the sense of, I, I prayed for them. You are interceding in real time. This is what Jesus is doing. And He actually terms it that way. I am praying for them. Does that twist your mind a little bit? Does that call a, cause a, a cerebral cramp, maybe? The fact that Jesus would pray for you Pray for me. It's huge. Interceding is this idea of standing in the gap for someone who needs help. Someone who can't quite get there on their own. It is part of how we pray. It is to lay up for others around us that need help and, and beseeching the Father and saying, God, they need help. And usually it's because we can't help them, right? Right? We need God to do it. And even Jesus says this, because He's leaving, He will no longer be what? In the world. So He prays for them. And He says specifically not those in the world, but specifically the needs of those that He is invested in. Verse 10 says this, He sees Himself as a steward over those whom the Father has entrusted Him with. Verse 10 also says that He's glorified in them. How does that work? He's glorified in the sense that as they demonstrate the works of the Father, or they demonstrate that which Jesus has taught them, it brings glory to whom? It brings glory to Jesus. It's like the individual in the Olympics where they, they win and they want to thank their coach. They want to thank those who have invested in them because they know if it weren't for those individuals, I would not be standing here. I would not be winning He is forward-thinking. He's asking for their protection when He's gone. Verse 11. Let's read verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in Your name which You have given Me, that they may be what? One. Even as we are one. 
He is forward thinking. He's thinking about what will it be like for them when I leave. They can barely hang together with me being here right now. How will they stick together if I'm gone? Because He sends a helper. And because He calls upon His Father to intercede. Jesus understands our frailty when it comes to our relationships. And Jesus says a paramount thought, a paramount necessity is that we be one. That the disciples be one. The church blew up. The church became highly effective because of the work of the disciples. They were unified. Even though it was difficult work, they were unified. And they succeed because Jesus prayed for them. He requests unity in their lives and hearts. He also expresses that they can be one with Jesus and the Father just as Jesus is one with the Father. In verse 12, He says He has guarded them. What an unbelievable thought. How many of you have alarm systems on your cars, on your houses, on your kids? And yet Jesus, when He's checking off His list of His accomplished work, He says, I guarded them. And what's He say? Let's transition to verse 13. He says this, but now I'm coming. I'm sorry, let's uh, go back to 12 real quick. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. I guarded them, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So, as we move out of this idea of what did Jesus do while he was in the world, this is what he talks about. In His relationship, in His conversation with the Father, He is going over all that He has accomplished. He has not yet accomplished the cross, but He's talking about the magnitude and the depth of what He has done, and it has been worthwhile. He has succeeded. It is to the glory of the Father. Now, we have a little problem. Point two today. Jesus' exception. Did you hear it? I've guarded over all of them. I have kept them all. And they have not been lost except one. Judas. Jesus' exception. Folks, I don't understand Judas. Any theologian who says that they do is trying to piece together the best picture they can. Judas is complicated. If Judas was condemned to always be the betrayer, as Scripture says that there will be one, it doesn't name Judas, but if Scripture says that that would happen and Jesus says this only happened to fulfill Scripture, somebody had to take the fall is kind of how some might read that. Was he then condemned from the beginning of time to be that person? How fair is that? Can he be held accountable? I don't know the answer to that question. All I know is that Judas' problem was simply this. He was more about being of the world than in the world. And it cost him. It cost him. I don't have an answer to the fact that Jesus, knowing one would betray him, led him into the club, so to speak. I don't have an answer for that. All I know is that it happened. And I think the best that we can glean from Jesus' exception 
is that there's a demonstration of free choice while there's still a demonstration of the fulfillment of Scripture. And the best I can take out of that for you and I today is not to try to fix or figure out which, which one's going to win this battle. The issue of, of the providence of God and the will of God versus Judas's free choice. I think the biggest challenge here is to see how he spiraled. It was because he was of the world. So we sometimes have a response to that and say, we should not be in the world. We need to retract. We need to remove ourselves. I think individuals that fit into that mindset have been taught that, number one, and it's an erroneous teaching. And I think, secondly, they forgot to keep reading the high priestly prayer as we move on. Let's look quickly, shall we? We're going to move into 13 through 19, and now we move into Jesus being out of the world. What does that mean? Well, he talks about what his life was like in his prayer while he was here in the world. Now he's transitioning to what life will be like for his disciples now that he will be removed. Now that he will be removed. And what does he say? Starting in verse 13, it says he has given the disciples, he's, he has given to the disciples so that they may have joy. Don't miss that point this morning. That this is not all just about accomplishing things. That the character of God is about joy. The character of God is about beauty. The character of God is about righteousness and goodness. And as Jesus starts in on this part about being out of the world and you're talking about a serious and somber moment, how can there be joy? Have you ever been at a memorial service or a funeral where there was joy? I have. It's much better than being at one where it's lacking. And the best that we can do is reflect on the years that the person had while here in the world. But Jesus says, even though I'm coming out of the world, what I have invested in them is so that they can have joy. It says this, He has given them the Word. He's given the Logos. He's given Himself. The result, verse 14. Let's look at it real quickly. He says this, I have given them your word, and, not, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. It's amazing when you use the word of God, the world will hate you. They hated Jesus for it. They hated the disciples for it. They will hate you and I for it. But the word of God is the standard of truth, and it is good. It is approved. It helps. It is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. It is not this thing that restricts us from that which is good. It restricts us and confines us from destroying ourselves. He gave them the Word so that they may have joy. That Word was Himself. And as you see the Scriptures, by the way, when it says that He gave them the Word, don't misinterpret that, that He gave them the Old Testament. They already had the Old Testament. He's saying that I gave them Myself. And in essence, what that does is that creates the Gospels, which is the Word for us today. Amen? He said, I gave them the Word that they may have joy. The result is that the world hates them. The challenge for the disciples is to prove that. Each of the disciples was martyred except for John, and they still tried really hard with him. The guy was Teflon man. 
the world hated them. That's how you know that you can be in the world but not of the world, by the way. If you're not feeling that persecution, if you're not feeling that level of that Jesus felt or the disciples felt, it means you're not in the world. It means you've removed yourself. You're trying to experience heaven on earth right now. You're trying to live in this commune that's removed outside. Now, if Jesus had done that, where would the disciples be today? They wouldn't be disciples. Did you catch that? This is the pivot point this morning that I really want you to catch, by the way. That whether we're talking about being out of the world or in the world, that the challenge for Judas was not to be, what? Of the world. And because he was, it cost him. How do we then live on earth? We live as Jesus lived. The disciples mimicked Jesus. The disciples abided in Jesus. They bore fruit in Jesus. And so when you ask your question this, and, and, and this is kind of, kind of the uh, crux of maybe what we should feel this morning. Have you ever thought, why are we still here? Why are we still here? If we have the challenge laid on us that this is about coming to the Lord, that this is about redemption, this is about reconciliation, then at age six, when I gave my heart over to the Lord and I knew that that was my moment, why not just take me then? It's like receiving Disneyland tickets and you don't, you don't get to go till you're dead. That doesn't make a lot of sense, right? There must be a reason. Jesus did a lot on this earth that affected and impacted even you and I today before He ever hung on the cross. Because He was out of the world? No. Because He was of the world? No. Because He was in the world. Now here's the fascinating thing that you're going to pick up out of the text. He puts that same condition on the disciples. He requests from the Father, please do not take them out of the world because they will now carry my message to tax collectors, to prostitutes, to kings, to governors, to adulterers, to the neighbor. If we don't, I'm not sure what our prayer looks like before we come out of the world. Do you understand that? Our goal, your goal, my goal, is that we would be able to pray before we go out of the world exactly how Jesus prayed in those first 11 verses. I accomplished your work. There is no other reason for you and I to be here after we come to faith. If we have our understanding of what's waiting for us correct, which we should, that eternity is going to be glorious, sin-free, no tears, in the presence of God Almighty, there is no... I love you guys. I really do. But I'd much rather... Just hang out with you in heaven.
Our citizenship is in heaven. Let me give you a couple scriptures for us to understand. When Jesus says, don't take them out of the world, we have to look at a couple things that Jesus demonstrated because if we're in the world, we're going to face temptation. If we're in the world, we're going to face trials. Matthew 4 explains this to us. Look at the, look at the text up on the screen. This is the text that gives a demonstration of how Jesus fought against temptation when he inserted himself in the world. He didn't just mildly go into the world. He prepared himself. And through the Word and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in his incarnation, and I don't understand fully how all that works, but in the fullness of his humanity, he survived without sinning. And he did so under the ministry of the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God and through the power of the Father. And so here we see the famous text. And what happens when the devil tempts Jesus? Jesus answers with Scripture. If you are going to be in the world, my friend, you have to know your Scripture. You have to be involved. You have to live by the words of God. That is your power. That is your strength against the devil. Secondly, we have to change our mindset. Hebrews 11, 13-16 speaks of those who looked forward to a future kingdom, a future place that they called home. And the writer of Hebrews says that they didn't really look back to the place where they came from because that was no longer home. Once they realized that they were heading to a heavenly home, that was their fixation. That's what drove them. And that's what enabled them to survive and thrive in persecution. That's a key note for you and I. Number one, you want to be in the world? You better live by Scripture. Number two, you want to be in the world? You better know where your home is. Because you can get easily frustrated or distracted. As we continue on this morning, Jesus being out of the world, I ask you this question. Jesus sacrifices Himself so that we might be successful. If you know Christ as your Savior, get your life priorities straightened out according to His will today. You're here to change the world just like He was here to change the world. If you were to give a final prayer and lay before the Father what you had done with what He gave you, would it sound anything like what Jesus stated about Himself? If not, Understand that Jesus prayed for you that it would. You can only succeed if you stay in the world without being of the world before you are out of the world. There's a great song that I hold dear to my heart called When It's All Been Said and Done. We don't sing it enough. Hint, Stephen. This is the first verse. When it's all been said and done, there is just one thing that matters. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? Second verse says this. When it's all been said and done, all my treasures will mean nothing. Only what I have done for love's reward will stand the test of time. The third verse says this. Lord, Your mercy is so great that you look beyond our weaknesses, that you found purest gold in miry clay, turning sinners into saints.
You see a fourth verse, right? You go look it up. But my friends, this morning, this message was very different on Thursday. This message changed at 2.30 yesterday afternoon after I met with my good friend Eric. And after I heard the words where he said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to change the world. Eric, when you get there, buddy, you're not going to want to come back. Trust me. Because it looks like that. What do you do with the time you've been given? Because there's no second chances. Make this count. This morning as we close, I'm going to ask the men to prepare the offering. If you're visiting with us today, please, all we want you to do is hear the Word of God, sense what God is doing, and eat with us afterwards. And if you would like, some of you actually uh, have said that you want to kind of connect up with me, you want to get to know me a little bit, or you have some questions. I have no way to contact you because you haven't filled out one of those cards yet. So if you could please fill out the card, then, then I can give you a call or email you and we can kind of set up a meeting and, and get to know one another. Love to do that with you. Um, this morning as we take the offering, this is an extension of our worship. We do so because it's our way of giving back to God. It's our way to give to Him who gave immensely to us. And I will share with you right now, uh, last time I said this, there was over $1,000 of cash given in the offering. That never happens. And someone wonder if when I say this, I'm just saying it because I know no cash goes in the offering. But if you're in need this morning, this is how the church used to operate. If you're in need this morning, and it goes by and there's some cash, you take what you need for what you need. Understand that God's watching. It's all under God's eye. But you take what you need. Because that's what part of this offering is for. Is that we're able to help the people. Also, if you're in need, you can come talk to myself or to one of the elders after the service. And we would love to be able to know how we can help you. Let's pray over the, over the offering this morning. Lord God, it is a blessing to receive from You. But it is more of a blessing to give back. It seems like it is such a uh, small amount. And Lord, I know that this morning there are those that sit here and they wish they could give, but there's just nothing. It seems like there's nothing. Grow them in that effort. And many of us give through our time and our resources. Father, You teach us what it means to sacrificially give. That is the example that You provide for us. There's something that is an extension of the fullness of love and the gift of love when sacrificial giving happens. Teach us that. We pray that You are pleased with our offering, with our gifts, and that You use them mightily to Your glory. Thank You, Father, to Your glory. Amen.